You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. So Jesus anointed at Bethany. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Thank you. Over to you, Matt. Hey, and hi, everyone. Really wonderful to be uh, with you. Do keep um, Mark 14 opened as we work through it. A very dramatic passage. Why don't we pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, we, we come before you knowing that you are the God who speaks and you are the God who knows the details of our hearts and our lives. And so we have every anticipation that you will speak to us now as your word is opened. We do ask that as we see this picture of Jesus, as we see two responses to him, that you would open our hearts to what you would have us hear, where you would have us be challenged, where you would have us hear words of comfort. But we pray that none of us would leave this place unchanged. Amen. Well, we live in a time of, well, arguably, people are more risk-averse than ever before. You see, COVID, you know, that distant memory that kind of comes up every winter, doesn't it, with new variants and jabs, COVID back then has taught us even today that the world is not safe. And that actually, it really doesn't matter how hard you work or what you achieve in life, it can all be taken away from you just like that. Uh, FOMO, that is fear of missing out, 
has taught us to spin as many social plates as you possibly can keep going. It teaches us to keep your commitments very vague and keep your appointments loose just in case that ultimate unicorn option of the very best experience arrives at the last minute because you wouldn't want to miss out. I was reflecting as well, even even the phenomenon of online dating, which was invented to make it way easier to find that ultimate relationship, online dating, many years after its invention, finds itself in a world where there are statistically more people single than ever before, and statistically it is less likely for many ever to settle down and marry. Why is that? It's because there is no app that can give anyone the courage to go all in when there is a risk of getting hurt. And yet, for all of that, we are a society, are we not, that loves a good cause, loves the idea that life isn't to be wasted doing kind of normal or frivolous things. We love the idea that life should be invested in something big, grand, larger than ourselves, a cause that we can give ourselves to. We live in a time of social media, don't we? where that phenomenon known as kind of virtue signaling, that is where you might change your profile picture to show your support of the latest worthy cause. Well, it it enables all of us to paddle in the waters of bringing good change to the world without any of us really having to get wet. Well, the passage today that we're looking at, Mark chapter 14, it will offer you a version of Christianity that is the equivalent of jumping off a cliff with all of the terror and excitement that comes with it. It is an invitation to every single one of us, whether you're on the balcony, in the auditorium, or watching online, to go all in. All in. That's what's on the table this afternoon. I've got two points. The first one's this. Jesus is everything. Looking at verses one to nine. Jesus is everything. Now we've been tracking over the course of this term through chapters nine to 14 of Mark's gospel. And today, I think, you know, it's appropriate as we head towards Christmas. This is like the end of season finale. Okay, because after today, we're taking a break from Mark and entering full into the Christmas season with the carol service only being next week. And in this final section, Jesus has arrived in the vicinity of Jerusalem and he's spent a lot of time around the temple and he's been interacting with all of the authorities and the establishment groups around that time. And each group, whether it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians, have turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, who are you? What are you all about? Pick a team. And Jesus, in turn, has gone to each one of them and said, no, no. And so the battle lines are drawn. We've come to the point towards the end of Mark's gospel where either you're going to follow Jesus or you're going to be against him. 
I mean, our passage today begins with this uh, threat that they're looking to take Jesus down. And so it's appropriate in our final part, our season finale, if you will, we finish with two people. No big groups, no massive philosophies. Two people. One who says, I'll follow Jesus, and the other says, I wish he was dead. A whole term's worth of Bible teaching summed up in two people, two options, two trajectories. So I want you to come with me to verse three. In verse three, we arrive at a small house in a village called Bethany. It's a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and we, we reach this house in Bethany when it is dark. And come with me to the open plan ground floor of this particular house in Bethany, and it's packed full of people who are laughing and joking and conversing under the flickering light of a candle. It's actually the house, we're told, of a man called Simon the leper, a man that Mark, who wrote this account of Jesus' life, he expects us to know. And of course, the, the first century reader, if we were there at the time, we probably would have heard of this person. That's why their name is written so specifically. This guy, Simon the leper, he's most likely someone who has been healed previously by Jesus. And now he's having the opportunity to offer hospitality to Jesus, the disciples, and Jesus' friends. If it was today, you could imagine being in the home, if it was today, that on the fridge there'd be a cutout of Simon's face on the front of the Manchester Evening News, uh, right beside a copy of The Lancet that said, Headlines, Miracle Cure. But here we are. It's the end of the evening, it's the time of time where the meals have finished and the plates have been taken away and, and then good bants are flowing. How do we know that? We're told in our passage that they were reclining. And, and in Eastern, Near Eastern culture, at the time when you reclined at the end of the meal, it was because the meal had been wonderful, the conversation had been fantastic and you were just enjoying the buzz. And then a woman comes in. And it's notable to the group because she's carrying a very large alabaster jar. We're told in our passage that it was carrying pure nard. Now, that is a kind of lavender-smelling perfume. It possibly originates from India. That was where the best stuff came from in the first century. Uh, and therefore, uh, an alabaster jar of pure nard, this lavender-spelling perfume, it would have cost an absolute fortune. In fact, we're told that it's worth 300 denarii, which is the equivalent of a, a, of a year's salary at the time. It's a lot of money. Now, look... It, this is no surprise to you, but I don't really know very much about fashion. No surprise. But what I do know, and this is exciting for those of you who care about such things, I do know that this month, 
Chanel are coming to Manchester to do one of their great kind of exhibitions slash parties, whatever it is they're doing. And they're taking over Manchester City Centre and there is a huge buzz around the city because Chanel, the massive fashion house, is coming. And the other thing I know about Chanel is they have the most famous perfume in the world, Chanel Number no. 5. But Chanel Number no. 5 isn't actually the most expensive perfume in the world. That award goes to a perfume uh, called Shamook by a label called Nabil. And I get this, it is priced. This is perfume. It is priced at 1.29 million, okay, for a jar of this perfume. Now, some of you are thinking that's a bit steep, but think about it this way. Apparently, you get three litres of the stuff, and it's a unisex fragrance. So, you know, they, <laughs> those of you are thinking to yourself, do you know, maybe that's an option for the Christmas list? Well, who knows? You know, I am happy to, uh, to stimulate your thoughts on that. Well, the woman in our story, she takes the most expensive perfume that no doubt anyone in this room will have ever seen in their life. And what we know about it, we can only guess, but what the scholars think is it was probably like an old family heirloom. This massive jar of this very expensive perfume is like a family heirloom. It's passed down from from daughter to daughter to daughter throughout the generations. It, It was a treasure. It was financial security. It was a mark of status, handed down from generation to generation. That's why she has so much of it. And what does she do? Breaks the flask. Breaks the jar. Smash. Not by accident. She does it intentionally, this passage tells us in order to anoint Jesus. Now, anointing in the time in the ancient Near East, well, that was something that was occasionally done. You would have heard of it happening if you'd been in the first century. It was occasionally done at very formal feasts. It's not the type of things that you'd find done in Nando's with some of the chili oil, but you would occasionally hear about it at a very, very formal feast, an honoured guest getting anointed with fragrance but you would never have seen this. Uh, Let me give you an example. The Roman writer, uh, a guy called Horace, described how he went during the, the Roman times to a very, very extravagant feast, and the host allowed, get this, the host, as the climax of the entire meal, allowed his guests to dip their finger in nard, which is the same fragrance as in our passage, and just dip it and tweak the noses of the guests. That's all they got. And apparently it was incredible. A memorable feast. Just a drip on the nose. Now, think about it like this. If it was us, and we had this intention to anoint Jesus, and we had this very expensive perfume, no doubt many of us, you're generous people, I know you are, you would have given a good dollop of the stuff to Jesus. Fine. But you wouldn't use all of it, would you? You see, smashing the alabaster jar and pouring it all over the head of Jesus was a phenomenal statement. It was saying, I'm going all in. 
It's saying, look, no rainy day, no cautiously put down a deposit. This is the equivalent of a spiritual bungee jump without a safety rope. That's what this woman is doing. This woman is saying, this is the single moment it is worth everything to me. It's like going to a casino and taking everything that you own and putting it on black 17. My future, my security, my reputation on this one moment because I'm gambling that I will look back at this and have no regrets and say it was worth every penny. It's quite a phenomenal statement to make, isn't it? That's what she's doing when she breaks this very expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. Well, think about it like this. Back in the house, back in the house. You got the smash. And then you've got the smell, which would have just been an absolutely sensory explosion. Oil would have absolutely saturated Jesus' hair. It would have run down his face, onto the cushions, onto the tables, and no doubt spreading across the guests all around him. The smell would have been so potent. Remember, it's this kind of lavender perfume. It would have been so potent that it would have lasted in the house for months. And I don't think it's that much of a stretch to imagine that not long after this, the soldier who hurls a spear into the dead body of Jesus on the cross may well have experienced just a scent of lavender in the air as he did that. Well, there's moral outrage absolute moral outrage of what this woman does. You can imagine the, the conversation goes silent and then absolutely erupts. You know, it's like one of those awkward moments at a dinner party when, um, you know, there's a couple of guests and they're bantering about the fact that Manchester City spends, say, 56 million on, on Haaland, and yet actually it turns out that's an absolute steal. And then someone who overhears that conversation chimes in and completely interrupts and says, that is an awful, it is an obscene amount of money. You could purchase two schools in the UK for that same amount of money or, or build 800 hospitals in Nigeria for the same cost. It is outrageous that it's spent on that. Verses four and five tell us there was this level of uproar in the room. The guests are furiously incensed that this extravagant waste of money is happening right in front of them and the party descends into pandemonium. We don't know, but perhaps someone laid a hand on the woman, tries to intervene. We don't know, but Jesus says something shocking. Verse six. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always have you and you can help them anytime you want but you will not always have me. I wonder if you feel the immediate discomfort. Do you feel the discomfort of Jesus' statement there? You see, in our day and age, people have been cancelled or deplatformed for less in verses 6 and 7. 
you know, we kind of want to say in the 21st century, look, Jesus, this is bad PR, Jesus. We want to see you serving in the soup kitchens, not at some expensive Chanel salon. Bad PR, Jesus. But I want you to pause the moral outrage just for a moment because Jesus is actually teaching us something here that is absolutely vital for us to snatch hold of. Look with me at verse eight. We're told that she did what she could. Verse nine tells us that she was preparing his body for burial. And in the ancient Near East, it was very typical for dead bodies to be buried but with sweet fragrances on them. And whether this woman knew about Jesus' coming death or whether Jesus interpreted her devotion as appropriate because he knew that he was going to die, now we don't know for sure. But what I want you to see from this passage is that Jesus says that what she does, that everyone says is an absolute moral outrage, Jesus says is a beautiful thing. It's interesting, isn't it? I was reflecting on this. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, oh, that was a theologically sound thing to do. Or, oh, that was an encouraging thing that she did. Or, that's a flattering thing. Or, that is a worshipfully appropriate thing. He says, no, no, what she did was a beautiful thing. Now, look, I think you can tell a lot about someone by what they find beautiful. You see, beauty, this deep goodness, is a word that evokes not merely intellectual appreciation or moral approval of something. It's a word that describes being moved to the very seat of your affections, to your heart. That's the response that we use when we see a beautiful sunset. Or we see a kind of a wonderful view on top of a mountain. We use the word beauty because it kind of expresses that yearning from deep within our pores that our whole being finds that beautiful. Now, for those of us who are believers here today, and you're wondering to yourself, I wonder what type of gift that I could give to Jesus this Christmas that would make Jesus' heart absolutely light up. I, I, I think we need to reflect on this. This woman recognized who Jesus truly is. And she loved him. She loved him with an all-in expression. That's the phrase, isn't it, from our beginning, an all-in. This was her going all-in because she truly recognised who Jesus was. This was her expression. It was to take the most precious thing that she had and to go all-in and utterly devote it to Jesus. There's lots of examples of that in church history. One of them that comes to mind is a Christian leader called Polycarp, who some years later after this, when the Romans were persecuting Christians, he was arrested and he was dragged to an arena in front of a huge crowd. And the crowd wanted to see him killed, but 
But the governor who was the authority figure said, look, Polycarp, all you have to do to save yourself and save your life, and you're an old man, you're an old man, all you have to do is save yourself and to live in comfort for the rest of your days is to deny that Jesus is God of all. And this was Polycarp's words in response. He said this, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? You see, his love for Jesus saw him go all in with his life. And that is beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful to Jesus. Now, in our culture, this act of going all in, this beautiful thing, is unlikely in Manchester to be giving up your, your life physically. Rather, I think going all in for Jesus here in Manchester is sacrificing your great treasure. Most typically, if, if it's for me, and I, I think if it's for you as well, it's probably our comfort, isn't it? Sacrificing that, devoting that to service of Christ is probably what it looks like for us to go all in and do a beautiful thing. For this is what the woman is doing with her ointment, taking that most precious treasure she has and saying it all belongs to you, Jesus. Not because I have to, but because I love you. You see, for us, the treasure could well be our house or our flat that we have. No one would blame you if you kept that as your special thing for yourself. But I know there is a number of you here who actually, even this Christmas, have said, I want to open my home up this Christmas to those who are not going home to see their families, but are staying in the city. And they can come to mine and they can share what I have. Isn't that beautiful? For us, it could be our time I know a number of us who've said when we had a members meeting earlier this uh, week and we need far more people to serve on hospitality for the carol service coming up next week. It's our big evangelistic event of the year. They've said, actually, I know it's a busy time, but I'm going to put my hand up and I'll serve. I'll help. I'll give my time. It could be your energy. I know many of us are aware, aren't we, that we, we are going into Christmas and we are tired we're exhausted, aren't we? And yet for some of us, it may well be, no, actually, despite how I feel, I will reach out and offer kindness and love, care to those who need it, despite the fact that no one would blame me if I said, actually, I just need to take some time for me. For some of us, it is reputation, isn't it, that we throw on the line? Some of us, this Christmas will be the first time we have ever dared say to our colleagues, did you know that I go to a church? And oh, by the way, we're having a carol service and I'd love you to come if you're free. Now, for some of us, that might just seem a small thing. For some of us, that is summiting a mountain. Because you know you feel like your reputation's on the line, but despite that, you're going to do it anyway, and that is a beautiful thing. For many of us, though, for many of us, 
the sacrifice is saying no to comforts that no one in our culture would blame us for indulging in and saying, actually, I will take my life and devote it to Christ no matter what the cost. Something our society would say is normal to have for yourself, but our response is to say, actually, being a Christian is anything but normal. I refuse to play it safe. And so I will mobilize my treasure to serve God. So here's the question for you this evening. Is there a treasure in your hands right now that you have the opportunity to devote to Christ for his service? Not because you have to, but because you love him and choose to. Well, come with me to our second and final point. Jesus as an accessory, verses 10 and 11. Jesus as an accessory. You see, in contrast to this woman's beautiful devotion is Judas's betrayal. We're only given two verses of it and we would love to know more, wouldn't we? You see, I certainly would. I'd love to know why, Judas. What pushed you over the edge? Why would you do this to your own friend? But all we know from our passage is that Judas felt that there was something very threatening about Jesus, so much so that Jesus couldn't just be ignored, he had to be stopped. Now we're told that he's given money for it, but really the money is just a footnote. Don't be distracted by that. Matthew 25 tells us that it was 30 pieces of silver, which was the amount of money that was in Jewish law that you would have to pay compensation if your slave got gored, that is, badly injured by a bull. It's hardly breaking the bank. This is hardly a lottery win. Something in Judas's heart had very clearly gone very wrong in his relationship with Jesus. But let me caution you, City Church, Don't be too quick to distance yourself from Judas. Don't be too quick to do that. You see, for those of you city churches who think that your spiritual life would be way better, that all you need is to experience the presence of Jesus more closely, I need you to remember that Judas talked to Jesus as you and I talk to our friends. And he still did this. For those of you city churches who say, look, I need more theological knowledge. That's what will set my faith alight. That's what I would need to really go out with be courageous for Jesus in all aspects of my life. I need you to remember that Judas sat at the feet of Jesus, the inventor of the universe, and sat with his teachings. And it wasn't enough. For those of you who think, I need more community. That's what I need. I I, I need to be with more community, like-minded people, and then I'll experience Christianity as it ought to be done. I need you to remember that Judas lived 24-7 with those other disciples, sharing everything they had in common. And yet it still wasn't enough. What then makes the difference? 
You see, you've got the woman and you've got Judas. Both agree that Jesus is a great servant. That's what we heard in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, isn't it? Jesus is the servant of all. And yet one said that this servant was worth 30 pieces of silver and the other said that this servant is priceless. The hinge. The hinge is whether or not you believe that Jesus serves you either because he owes you or he serves you despite yourself. You see, for some of us, for some of us, we, we probably don't think that we're perfect, but we probably do think that we're the right sort of person, that we've probably got a nice personality, that actually we work hard, that we've achieved well, we've endured enough hardship to feel that actually if there is a creator in heaven, he owes us one. And so if that's you, you probably think to yourself deep down, the best that Jesus can really offer is to maintain my current winnings and maybe, just maybe, be enough of a power-up in order to help me continue on the trajectory of success that I'm already on. Therefore, really, if that's what Jesus is all he can offer you until you die... Well, then for you, Jesus will always be more of a threat than an asset. His value to you will largely depend upon to what degree will Jesus play nice with my life? Will Jesus let me alone to get on with things my way? Will Jesus just be tame and sit in the corner? And if that is you, you need you need to know that you're not right. You need to know that deep down you are not the example that you pretend to be. And to prove that, you need to look at what it cost Jesus on the cross to pay for your sin in full, not in part, in full, so that you might be utterly forgiven. Though you treat him like a handbag accessory, you need to know that he loves you and he willingly died on a cross so that you might be saved, so that you might be absolutely forgiven. You need to know that. Now for others of you sitting here, either in the auditorium or on the balcony or watching online, for others you may well be aware of how far you have fallen short of all that you should be. And for you, you look away from the cross, not because you think you're too good for it, not because you think too much of yourself, but simply because when you think of the cross, it makes you feel ashamed. It makes you feel ashamed that Jesus went all in for you because it reminds you of how much of a fraud you are deep down. Well, if that's you, and I know that's speaking to a whole bunch of us out there, you need to know that Jesus Christ looks at you today and he sees all that you are, all that you are in secret, and he says, I know what you've done. And I know that since I first came into your life, I know all of the ways that you have not lived with justice or purity or honesty. 
I know. And yet if I had to die for you again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Why? Because I love you. Let me finish with this. If your perception, if your perception is of cross, that Jesus died because really he owes you, then you are on a trajectory that will take you to the same place as Judas. But if you look at the cross and you kind of look at the cross and you go, wow, he went all in for me? And I do not deserve it and I cannot repay it. Well, then you are on a trajectory to live a very beautiful life. Two ways to live. Two directions, two trajectories, two visions of the cross, two visions of Jesus. Which are you? Which are you? Which are you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we have not lived as you have asked us to. And yet you in your goodness and kindness to us sent your only son to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven. So that the shame of our secret lives might be taken away and that we might be restored into full relationship with you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so sorry for those of us who think that we are above the cross, that we have made it by ourselves, and that we have done enough to earn your favor and your service. Break our hearts again to see clearly the blackness of our own hearts, the filth of our own actions. Remind us again as we look on the cross because you went all in for us first. We can take our treasure and go all in in service of you now. Amen.